everybody. I'm Pastor Robin, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for what we're about to hear. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us again today. Okay, uh, we're entering into a new phase in the book of Acts, and so I just want to stop as I get going, and I want to say this. What I'm about to preach, in my opinion, is probably uh, one of the most important, if not the most important thing we're going to hear, probably in this whole series. So I'm going to beg your attention as we get going today, whether you're in, a, in one of our sites today, you're listening online, no matter where you are, I'm really going to beg your attention uh, at this moment. Okay, I'll begin with like this. Uh, it was Thanksgiving a few weeks ago. I, again, a lot of you who are Americans and listening are confused. We do Thanksgiving at a different time than you do. And uh, so we're doing Thanksgiving. We did two different Thanksgiving uh, dinners, totally different this year. Uh, one of them not so traditional, one of them traditional. And so for the more traditional one, uh, my wife bought a turkey. She was actually using my car that day. She had one of those sort of fabric grocery bags. And so she brought a turkey home and all sorts of other things. It was great. And so she came home, we unloaded the groceries, my wife and made an amazing meal, our family gathered, great. So that was on like Sunday, Monday. Tuesday morning, uh, we go to get in the car because it's early in the morning, I'm taking my daughters to school. As we literally get in the car, we open the door and sit down, we all almost want to vomit. The car smelt like something had literally died in the car. It was overwhelming stench. So it was so bad, we started looking to see if food had been sort of fallen out of the grocery bag, something had rotted, but it had only been like two plus days. We're like, this is so bad. It was so bad, actually, I went in and opened the trunk uh, to see if something was there, and then I opened the engine to see if an animal had died, I had run over something. Anyway, it was so bad. Uh, we drove to school, the windows were down, I was like, I hope this smell doesn't literally get in our clothing. <laughs> uh, dropped the girls off, came back, got my son to take him to school. He basically sits in the car and almost vomits. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. The windows are down. We drive back to school. I come back home. I do a full inspection of the car. So I go to the back and then I'm like, the smell is here and I can find nothing, but it's just overwhelming. Uh, and so I have to drive to work. So I literally drive from Port Hope to the Ajax site where I'm taping this right now. The windows are down, it didn't matter how cold it was because I was just overwhelmed by the smell. Anyway, here's what we discovered. Uh, the turkey bag had been slit and the turkey juice, I think, went into the fabric bag and then went into the carpet and then went down underneath the carpet to where the tire sits and even went down into where the metal, uh, the metal is. I had to get um, a, a carpet expert to come in and literally clean through the car because I couldn't even get to the places uh, with, with shampoo. It was just awful. The turkey was awesome. This was awful. You're like, okay, John, why are you sharing this story? Here's why. When I walked out that Tuesday morning, the car looked great. When I sat in the car, the car worked amazingly. But inside this very nice, beautiful, working car was an overwhelming, disgusting, choking stench. I want you to have that in your mind as we get into the passage today. A car that works, 
that's good, and there's trouble inside all at once. Got the image? Okay, maybe you can even smell it. All right, so here we go. We're gonna go back to the story for a bit, and then I'll make the connection between the turkey, the car, and the passage. Uh, two weeks ago, and then last week, so I preached two weeks ago, Ange preached last week, we're walking through a moment where the church is dealing with the first real wave of persecution. And after that moment of persecution, as Ange really uh, brilliantly preached last week, the church came back together and prayed a very powerful and dangerous prayer. So here's the quick recap. Peter and John in the temple heal a man who had been born with a disability since birth in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. The religious leaders said, you must stop or there will be a penalty. They said, we will not stop. And then Acts 4.32, on their release, you remember this, Peter and John went back to their own people, that is the church, reported all that the chief priests and elders or rulers had said to them. So they gather to evaluate the threat. And now the fear they're experiencing in that moment is real. And retreat, of course, is possible. It is now, they realize, it's going to cost them big time to actually be followers of Jesus. They're realists. The assault had come from the highest places, legal, religious, wealth, connection, power. Crisis has now come. Status quo no longer gives cover. What was sort of a standoff before no longer is a standoff. So now the question is, would they lay down their faith? Would they give into the threats? Would they become more bold? Would the leaders and the Holy Spirit courage given to the leaders spread to the thousands who follow Jesus? Or actually, would the whole movement now just fizzle out? This is a critical moment. Would crisis lead to crash? Or would this crisis lead to God-given opportunity? Now, this is how they answer. And this is what Ange preached through last week. They respond with a desperate, biblically informed, expectant, dangerous prayer. Here, here it is, Acts 4, 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, sovereign, king, one who's in charge. You made the heavens and the earth, the sea, everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate uh, met together with non-Jews and the people of Israel in this very city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power, though, and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord... Consider, look on their threats, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So this is what they pray. I want you to look at the threats of our enemies. I want you to literally, God, with all your attention, look at them. And we want to preach more bold, boldly. We want more miracles. In other words, here's what they pray. We want more trouble, not less trouble. We want more work that gets us in trouble, not less. Not personal safety, but your kingdom. Oh. Now, after they prayed this really unexpected prayer, the place, verse 31, where they were meeting was physically shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So another massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit takes place. The language of revival actually could be used here. This is unusual, not guaranteed. It's community-wide. It's powerful. And I love again what that famed church father, church father Chrysostom, once said. The place was shaken and made them more unshaken. 
Now, what's the result of this grand prayer? There's a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit again. This is not baptism of the Spirit. You're baptized in the Spirit at conversion. This is another new filling or outpouring. And what happens in this outpouring? Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, is repeated again in this moment. This is how it reads in Acts 4.32. All the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed any of their possessions were their own. They shared with everyone everything they had. Okay, so Luke basically records the life and character of this spirit-filled community. They were of one heart, one mind. Acts 2 says they were glad and sincere, thankful, unity, absence of pretense, open-hearted, generous. Not full of grudges, not envious, not jealous, not bitter, not marked by division, but actual mutual submission. Then it says in verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them. There was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone who had need. So God answers their prayer and the prayer produces a church that is doing community biblically, that is worshiping passionately, serving radically, giving joyfully, giving sacrificially, was praying expectantly, inviting courageously, proclaiming boldly. Now, pause. If you've got a Bible, just take a look at this. Between verse 32 and 34, there's verse 33. You're like, yeah, okay, well, hold on. Verse 32 and verse 34 are about radical giving and really helping the poor. So basically, giving and social justice. Those two amazing acts are not the good news. They are not the eternal gospel. Just like miracles, giving and helps is not an end within itself. They are door-opening events to share the good news. That is why between these two verses, there's a call once again to explicitly share the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the good news. Everyone listen to this. Feeding the poor and giving is never the end goal. The gospel is the end goal. Social justice and care without the exclusive good news of Jesus Christ being preached is not enough. It's kind, it's Canadian, it's not Christian. I want you just to think about this. Imagine tomorrow, literally tomorrow, all war ended globally, or all poverty was eradicated, or there was not a racist experience globally ever again. Just done. That was over. Though that would transform our world and be amazing, all those people who are experiencing a better life still would be eternally lost, right? So just understand, all three are needed, but what's the main goal? Now, of course, one of the greatest evidences of the spontaneous outpouring of the Holy Spirit is exceptional acts of generosity. When God moves, money is always a place where his work is evidenced. At this moment, it says property was being sold according to need. Now, don't misread this. This is not a wholesale disposal of private property in the church. Basically, people are giving generously, systematically, and they're giving above and beyond. Amazing. Faith moves the church to give as needed. Now, Luke, then, in this moment, during this revival-like experience, focuses on one individual in the whole church, actually a church leader. His name is Barnabas. And Barnabas reflects what real deep life change in Jesus looks like. He's so filled with the Holy Spirit, so Jesus-oriented, so marked by unselfishness that he is enabled and he is empowered to actually help others through giving. Now, the guy's name means son of encouragement. 
And what we're about to see is he chooses to sell land and he gives it to the leaders, those that God have put, put in charge of this church. And he's marked by joy and generosity and excitement and obedience and submission. And they mark Barnabas and they mark the church. Okay, here's how it reads in verse 36. So Joseph was a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned and brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, I want you to catch this before I've preached this, but I want to preach it again. Do you notice that he gives the money publicly in front of literally the whole church? Now, we should ask if you have church memory, hold on, doesn't that contradict what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount? At Matthew 6, 3, when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so your giving should be done in secret, and your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. No, 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 read the whole chapter. Jesus's point always is about motive. It's not whether it's done secretly or publicly. It's actually, why are you doing the thing or not? Matthew 6, 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do so, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. See, that's the context. So here's the point. Of course you can share publicly. And it doesn't matter if it's public or private. Actually, your motives matter. Do you want to give God glory? Do you want to build faith? Do you want to inspire others? See, there are so many stories, actually so many things we would call testimony in the scriptures. Actually, much of the Bible is nothing but gathered testimony. So with Barnabas... The giving was done in public to give God glory, to support the community. We see the man's name. We see how much was given. We see everything he, he gave. It's still being talked about 2,000 years later. And here's the truth. We actually need more stories and more testimonies of every kind to inspire people. And actually, as we're going to talk about in a bit, this just needs to become normal to give God glory, to build faith, and inspire others. Sure. Now, the real mark of an, on move, an ongoing move of God actually is found in verse 32. All the believers were of one heart and one mind. Now, now never forget that Acts 4, 32 is a screenshot. It's a snapshot. It's a season in the church produced by the overwhelming presence and awe of God, by the Spirit. So behind the amazing joy-filled giving, behind the preaching, behind the growing number of conversions, behind the miracles, behind the deliverances, behind the bold prayers, behind the feeding and loving the poor. There is a short season, a short season, of spirit-given unusual unity. A love that makes no sense, but it's heaven-breathed. And of course, of course, where the Holy Spirit shows up in greater power, there is love, and where there's more love, fear is cast out. Where there's love, death happens to selfishness and ego. Augustine, the great church father, once said that he, the Holy Spirit, is the eternal bond of love between the Father and the Son. And so, if that is true at all, when he binds us together, will, not, will it not be the same among us? And In other words, when the Holy Spirit truly shows up in a church profoundly, there is a revolution in relationships. Um, there are multiple examples of what this is supposed to look like in the New Testament. Let me read them to you. Slow. Ephesians 4.2. Be completely humble, O and gentle, and be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Ephesians 4.30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, 
slander, uh, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God has forgiven you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13.5, love does not dishonor, dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Uh, Hebrews 13.17, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account, that is to God. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that, uh, for, for that would be of no benefit for, uh, to you. So basically, those passages I just read are all happening in real time, lived out in a local church, and it's amazing. But, <laughs> but... During all moves of God, even revival-like experiences, there are always two other forces working actually in the exact same context, in the same environment, in the same place, the demonic and sin. So during this move of God, during this revival, during this amazing move of God, the next phase of the battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light takes place. And as we go through Acts, you'll begin to see that Luke begins to outline something called a turf war. Every time the gospel goes into a new geographical area, there's a confrontation with the demonic. In other words, the two kingdoms clash just like Satan and Jesus did in the wilderness and at the cross. There's always a battle as the gospel goes to a new place. So it should not shock us that the very first significant battle that is fought in the book of Acts, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, is fought in Jerusalem, specifically in the church itself, during a revival. Satan, being the father of lies, knows that the heart is the source of all decision-making. So he recruits from within. Like Judas and Peter before, now a couple named Ananias and Sapphira are the next, uh, next in the large attempt to shut down the church before it keeps spreading. So we turn over to Acts 5. Okay, remember, this is all happening during an epic renewal and revival. Acts 5.1. Now, there was a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, and they sold a piece of property also. So they're imitating what Barnabas did. And this time, this married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, are going to do the same thing. Now, interesting, their names matter. Ananias means the Lord is gracious, and Sapphira means beautiful. So the Lord is gracious to us, and, and godly beauty, great. So the couple goes and sells a piece of property, and they were going to give it to the church. And we'd all go, this is amazing. Actually, not really. This is where the car begins to stink. The car looks right on the outside, and the car is still driving, but something is now wrong inside. Motives matter to God the most. We can play and hide and lie and have mixed motives, and no one else picks it up. But God sees us spiritually naked. He knows everything. I love how this is recorded in 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. Oh, people look at outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Okay, things aren't great. Verse 2. With his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself and put the rest at the apostles' feet. So the couple make an agreement in secret. They give the money to the leaders so it appears like they're giving everything they got for the land but actually they're lying about it. So basically, it's like selling a house and going to the church and saying, I'm so excited. God's doing so many incredible things in this church. 
we just sold our house for $600,000. Here's the $600,000. But the truth is they got 1.2 million for it. Now, catch this everyone. It's their house. It's their land. It's their money. They don't have to give this. They had chosen to give this, but the issue is that they lie. In other words, this is about reputation. This is about online status. This is about being curated. This is about being airbrushed. But it gets worse. They're attempting to say they're wholeheartedly involved, and they lie to God and God's people. Now, kept back is a really strong word, and we don't catch it in English, it means to pilfer, embezzle, or steal. In other words, they're stealing from God. They're stealing his glory and stealing his money. And interestingly, this is the exact same word used in the book of Joshua, in Joshua 6 and 7, when this story happened back then with a guy named Achan. Okay, so they come into service, and they give, and I'm sure the whole church is like clapping, excited. This is amazing. This is another move of the Spirit. God's still moving. Look at what we can do for the kingdom. Hallelujah. More of this, Lord. Look at all the money, Lord. And then Peter stands up and says what everyone is not expecting. Ananias, how is it that Satan, uh-oh, <laughs> has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money that you receive from the land? All right. Number one, what's being addressed here is hiddenness. Hiddenness produces the most dangerous moments in families and churches because it produces an evil door-opening event. Remember, the very first thing that Adam and Eve did when they sinned is they what? Hid. Now, Peter, though everything, the car looks amazing, actually confronts the smell. <laughs> and everyone is shocked. Now, we see two spiritual gifts at work here, by the way, just to slow down here. We see words of knowledge, and we see discernment. Words of knowledge is the spiritual gift when God gives certain people the ability to have access to information that they don't have access to that leads to humility or humbling. And so what's interesting, Peter says, you've lied to God about the price. He didn't have access to that. That's a word of knowledge. Discernment is not you lied about this money. It's what walked through the door when you lied. So you have him using a word of knowledge. You've lied about the price. And discernment, Satan, something evil walked through the door when you did that activity. See the difference? Okay. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money for yourself that you received from the land? Now, Satan fills Ananias to the point of influence. Now, I'm just going to slow down and do this again. Ananias is a Christian, not a fake Christian, a real Christian. And we walk through all of this en masse in our series called Deliverance. You can be saved, predestined, elected, bought, owned by Jesus, and have the demonic in you, but not own you. This is about internal influence. I mean, Paul said this plainly in Ephesians chapter 4. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. In other words, Paul, in that case, uses anger, not lying, but it's the same thing. If you're involved in habitual sin, anger is the example here, you possibly, as a Christian, can let the demonic inside your life, but they will not own you 
but they'll have internal influence. The word foothold is topos in Greek, which means place, footprint, foot inside. In other words, Paul says, if you don't deal with your anger, you as a Christian will give demonic influence, area, locality, occasion, opportunity, place, region, room, inside your body, mind, and will. We, we've talked about this for years here. Imagine your house, and the house is owned by God. He has the deed. The Holy Spirit is actually right in the living room in the house, but there's a left bedroom window open upstairs on the second and third level, and squatters are now in the house. The squatters don't own the house. The squatters don't remove the owner of the house, but they're doing damage inside of the house, though they don't own the house because they've actually had it, found a window that is open. Now, I, I, th this is so incredibly important. It's not ownership. It's internal influence. Uh, this is what Paul says. We read the verse, Ephesians 4.30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. Paul affirms a sinning believer is still the property of God because he's sealed until, or she's sealed until Jesus returns. But he absolutely teaches the Spirit of God can be grieved by our sinful behavior and also we can give topos, foothold, to a demonic spirit inside of us. Some of you are saying, no, 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 John. God and Satan can't share the same space. Really? What Bible are you reading? I mean, number one, why do you think Satan is more evil than sin and worldliness? We would never say as Christians that God can't share sin, share space with our sin and worldliness. The Holy Spirit deals with our sinful activity and worldliness every single day. And of course, he's in the same environment as that. So if the Holy Spirit can share space with sin and worldliness, why can't he share it also with something dark? And, and not only that, to say that the demonic can't share the same space with God is just unbiblical. Job chapter 1, Satan's in God's very presence. Jesus and Lucifer share space at the temptations. And actually, here's the truth. God is omnipresent, which means that God all the time shares space with every single demon that exists at this moment. Satan doesn't own Ananias and Sapphira, but actually Satan, through this act, has got access to the community. He's got topos, and the goal is to actually bring the smell inside the working car and begin to destroy it. Let me read it again. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings. You've lied to God. This wasn't mandatory giving. This was just used to gain respect. Look at me, pride. Barnabas is getting all the accolades. I want the accolades. So he lies. He steals God's glory. He ends up stealing God's money. And he gives the devil a foothold in the local church. Remember, this is hypocrisy. And it's interesting what hypocrisy means. The original word for hypocrisy comes from the Greek theater, right? Like, actually, actors were called hypocrites. It didn't have a negative uh, inclination back then. A hypocrite was an actor who wore a different mask so he could take on a different persona. In other words, the spiritual energy now behind Ananias and Sapphira in the church appears from Christ, but is not from Christ, even though they're owned by Christ. Well, things get really wild. Verse 5, Ananias heard this and he fell down and he died. Oh, and great fear seized all that heard or saw what happened. And then the young adult ministry shows up to do their ministry. Verse 6, the young men came forward, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. Okay, three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And notice this, incredible. Peter asks Sapphira, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got from him? Yes, yes, this is the price. Now, this is amazing. Remember, God 
through Peter, gives her a chance. Peter's not looking to take Sapphira down. This is her, his sister in the Lord. This is mercy and grace, not some setup and let's take, like, these are not enemies. This is family. But she agrees with the pride and the lie and the deception. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. They're going to carry you at Elso. And at that moment, she fell down and died. And the young adult showed back up again. And finding her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all that heard about these events. Now, this is very important. Great fear seized the church. This is not about salvation. Let me reassure you, Ananias and Sapphira are going to hang out with us in the new heavens and the new earth. But God did do this because he wanted the church not to be destroyed from the inside out and the mission to collapse. Uh, the fear of God, as one person said, is like having extreme pain in your leg and you realize your body is saying to you, something is wrong. You cannot not deal with this. And so actually, interesting, that's why it says in the Old Testament, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Like, as we fear God as holy and as loving and as judge and as friend, but also as the living God consuming fire, we begin to understand the consequences of our sin and we live more holy and loving lives. Okay, we're going to end there. You're like, oh, good. I'm glad we're ending there. Well, yes and no. Okay. Um, I started this message by saying this is going to be one of the most important, maybe the most important sermon in this series. Why? In this small group of verses, we see actually how a church genuinely moves into momentum. This is not some leadership TED Talk, the three secrets, you know, three secret keys to moving. No time for that. This is not some generic thing. There's truth in here that's true all the time. I'm saying, my sense is, not only is there truth in this all the time, this is actually what Jesus is saying to Sanctus today. Today, us. This is for us. Okay, there are three things here that move a local church that, by the way, looks great and also runs really well to actually move where it should. Ange preached it last week. I'm going to repeat it again. When a church wants to actually move and take new ground, the first thing that will show up is desperate, united, expected prayer. Now, I, I just want to point out this. The early church prayed, get us in more trouble, Lord, not, Lord, protect us and make me feel safe. I know that the vast majority of us listening to this are North Americans, or we've immigrated to North America, but we live here. Most of us don't want to pray a prayer, God, get me in more trouble for my faith, not less. But interesting, I want you to notice this, the renewal moment takes place when personal comfort and security came second to the kingdom of God. So I'm just going to say this as an elder, as a pastor, and a fellow Christian in this church. If we want to take new ground, if, let me put it actually like this, if you want to move from the time of Moses into the time of Joshua, if you want to move from the wilderness and manna every day into milk and honey and take the ground we've been commanded to take, 
It starts with this decision where every Christian within the sound of my voice will pray this week, Jesus, get me in more trouble for my faith and do amazing things. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Generosity. Generosity. Now, again, hear this right. I've been part of this church since I was 14. I've been on staff for, this is my 26th year. And here's what I want to say. This has always been, in my opinion, our greatest barrier. This church, man, have we done a lot of things that are crazy. We've stepped out in ways most churches would never imagine stepping out, taking new ground, risking, praying, boldly, like gifts, deliverance, like so many things, multi-set, great. But we have never, as a whole, I want you to hear that, as a whole, had a Barnabas-like attitude as a church. Many of you listening to me, and by the way, I include myself in this, me and my wife, give faithfully. Give sacrificially. Some of you are like, man, it's not about number, by the way. It's not equal amount, it's equal sacrifice. Some of you are like, I can't give anymore. Great, I'm awesome. Here's what I'm just saying. (laughs) Um, There are hundreds of families. I have the stats. There are hundreds of families who are literally here and you don't give anything to this church. Nothing. There are hundreds more that give, I don't know, 100 bucks a year, 500 bucks a year, under 1,000. Now, some of you are like, man, that's a lot for me. God bless you. I'm not, yes, thank you. The Lord honor you. Here's what I'm just saying. As a whole, there is not a determination to give like Barnabas to take new ground. And, and here's the truth. The only reason at this moment, post-COVID, we are not genuinely, systematically, truly on the ground preparing for new ground like a new site or the next two sites. The reason, the major reason why we have actually not been able to truly get down to launching a leadership school to prepare the next generation of pastors for our church and other churches. And by the way, I was just talking to a church leader the other day. In their denomination, they have one pastor for 17 pulpits. The only reason why it's simple, everyone, it's just simple, it's simple, it's money. It's money. And we're not talking about a fund every once in a while. We're not talking about, like, I'm talking about systematic, regular, sacrificial, all-in giving. So I just want to say this again, not out of frustration, not out of anger, not out of manipulation. The only way this church takes new ground is when we actually pray a prayer we don't want to pray, which says, God, my personal safety at the expense of your kingdom. The second thing is that everyone within the sound of my voice in the next week literally says, I'm going to start regularly giving to the church. If everyone just regularly gave something joyfully to the Lord, it would transform this place. We would be taking new ground. I'm just going to say it again. We cannot do anything new. We cannot take any new significant ground unless this barrier that has been a barrier in our church since I've been here is broken by the faithfulness of everybody. So radical generosity and radical prayer. And here's the third thing. My personal life and your personal life, in other words, how I live when no one's in the room or when only a few people in the room is the actual front line of this whole church spiritually. The actual spiritual temperature of the whole church goes up and down like a thermometer depending on how we live 
when we're not here gathered together. Our personal life is the place where the Holy Spirit is either welcomed or grieved. And the reality is, Ananias and Sapphira show us this, the reality is for some of us, we have a Trojan horse in our lives, in our families, in our connect group. We have allowed the d- demonic within us, even though they don't own us. How many do you think, honestly, how many demonic beings do you think are crawling around in us, in our connect groups, in our families, in our worship services, because we play with fire, and we either don't believe there will be supernatural consequences, or it wouldn't be that extreme. Trust me, Ananias and Sapphira were like, we're going to lie a little bit. It's not a big deal. Isn't that how we play with much of our lives as Christians? What we watch, what we consume online, how we talk to, uh, about others when they're not in the room? And, and I just want to remind you again, go back and listen to the Deliverance series. This is war, and it's not fair. And just because you think this couldn't happen or it doesn't fit into your theology or you don't really believe in demons, you know, here, here's the truth. It just can happen. We wonder why unity is so hard. We wonder why churches seem never to have enough faith or power or holiness or prayer to see life change or take new grounds. Well, the truth is many of us are Ananias and Sapphira. And that's not a shot, by the way. And by the way, I'm not declaring going to drop dead somewhere. I'm just, it's just the truth. I, what I would like you to do, take out your phone wherever you might be, and I, I want you to take two photos. I'm going to give you two prayers that we use in our releasing prayer uh, ministry here that I would love hundreds or thousands of us, because again, there's 3,700 people connected to this church deal. So I'd like thousands of us to maybe pray these prayers this week. One of them, the first prayer, is how we ask Jesus to have mercy on us and close any doors we've opened. And the second one is about forgiveness. So I'm just going to read the first one, and it will be coming up now. You can take a photo and pray it later. It reads like this. Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I, you say your name, confess, renounce, and reject my involvement in, and list whatever it is, lying, stealing, porn, slander, gossip, gluttony. I ask the Holy Spirit to close and seal all doors that may have been opened to me or my family. Seal them with the blood of Jesus, of the true Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In other words, shut that down. We need to take a stand against that. Now, I want to end with this verse, uh, Ephesians 4.31. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander and malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgiveness is costly. It's hard. It's difficult. It takes time. It's not easy. And it's critical. So here's a prayer I'd love lots of you to pray this week about forgiveness so Satan doesn't get ground in our church because of brokenness or relationships. This reads like this. Dear Heavenly Father, you can take the photo. I thank you that your kindness has led me to repentance. I confess that I have struggled to the extent, uh, I have struggled to the extent that the same patience and kindness towards others who have offered me, sorry, let me read this again. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that your kindness has led me to repentance, and I confess that I have struggled to, to extend that same patience and kindness towards others uh, who have offended me, but instead I've harbored bitterness and resentment. I pray that during this time of self-examination, you'd bring to my mind those people that I have not forgiven in order that I may begin the process of forgiveness. And those I have hurt or offended, and I need to ask forgiveness of. Lord, I choose to begin the forgiveness process. And then it says, literally identify the offense because it made me feel. Say the word what it made you feel. Lord, I release all these people to you and I release my right to seek revenge 
I choose not to hold on to bitterness or anger. I ask you to heal my damaged emotions. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's great hope uh, for every church, uh, and there's great joy and peace offered. And there is great future for this local church. There is great future for our personal lives, our relational lives, our, our families, our friends. Like, nothing's beyond the love and beauty of God. But my encouragement this week is this. Would you be willing to pray a prayer where you say, God, get us in more trouble, not less? Would you be willing to say, Lord, am I actually even generous? And actually change it so we can break the ceiling to move forward. And would you be willing to actually pray one of these two prayers or both of them? Asking God to close doors that might have been open and also teaching or learning to forgive and pray for others. So I'm just going to pray the Holy Spirit works in these three avenues. So Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit like you did in Acts 4. Move in great power. Help us to pray prayers we don't want to pray. <laughs> Help us to trust you. Lord, help generosity to now take place because it's so many are generous in our church, but now may it become church-wide. May there just be a real un unbelievable moment of generosity. And lastly, Lord, would you begin to close doors among us and teach us forgiveness? I'm asking you, Lord, in the next week to do unbelievable miracles among us. I ask this in Jesus' name, and we all said, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. We hope you enjoyed what you heard. God bless you.